1: Good day, welcome to New Books in History, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. My name is Dr. Charles Coutillo of the Royal Historical Society. I'm a host on the channel, and today I'm pleased to have with us uh, Dr. Daniel Larson. Dr. Larson is a college lecturer in history at Trinity College, Cambridge. And today we are discussing his book, Plotting Peace, American Peacemakers, British Co-Breakers, and Britain at War, 1914-1917, to 1917, published by Cambridge University Press. Welcome, Dr. Larson.
0: Uh, welcome. Yes, hello. Thank you for having me. Uh,
1: Dr. Larson, um, what would you say is the thesis of your book?
0: Um, so so the, the the main argument cuts, uh, 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 is about Britain and America in the, the First World War. Uh, the, the main argument is that uh, there was a key faction in the British government uh, that took American peace diplomacy much more seriously than people have recognised uh, in um, uh, 1916, in particular, um, and it, it traces why they were interested, um, uh, which was mainly out of economic reasons, um, and then and then uh, uh, why uh, these efforts uh, failed to come to fruition in terms of. Uh, uh, looking at the intelligence dimension and, and uh, the division in in British politics, so um, so so it looks at uh, uh, American diplomacy and uh, and the British war effort um, is the the main main focus of the book.
1: How would you say that your book challenges the existing historiographical consensus on the subject area covered by the book?
0: Um, well, so so the existing. Uh, historiography is pretty united in uh, in the assumption that uh, the British leadership never had any interest in American efforts to mediate the First World War, Um, that that Colonel House, who was the the kind of the figurehead or the the head of of these efforts uh, for the United States side, he was the chief advisor and and confidant of U.S. President Woodrow Wilson, um, that, that his efforts Uh, never went anywhere and that that the only people who were interested uh, or who looked to be interested in American mediation were only pretending uh, to be so for his sake uh, just humoring him Um, and uh, and my work uh, uh, challenges that. It argues um, uh, that uh, extensive research in British archives uh, shows that um that he was taken much more seriously than people recognize that the british um uh, were or some of the british leaders were were starting to thinking think about wanting to find a way out of the first world war um mainly for economic reasons that uh, that that they did not believe uh, that the british war effort um was capable of winning the war uh without the united states
1: how and why does your treatment of Woodrow Wilson as peacemaker differ from that of Philip Zelikoff in his recent book, A book which I might add relies heavily on your own?
0: Um, yes, uh, so so um, we we have come to rather different um, uh, conclusions on that front, um, or or at least uh, of the American side. Uh, so so in in my portrayal, um Colonel House uh, comes across as, as quite a competent character uh, who uh, understands what uh, what power he has at his disposal um, and who uh, is um, able to cultivate a, a, a desirably strong diplomatic relationship with uh, with the British. Um, while Woodrow Wilson, on the other hand, doesn't really seem to grapple uh, with the realities of, um, uh, uh, of British uh, British uh, uh, politics and and of the uh, the realities of the di- of the of the geopolitics of the European war. He sort of leaves the house, um, and it leads Wilson to make uh, some very serious mistakes in my view um whereas uh Zellico's, uh treatment is, is uh, a little bit the other way around um uh in terms of of how he sees these two individuals um uh but i'll uh, uh leave uh leave the reader to explore that difference um, i suppose
1: um how can though your um uh, mostly positive view of Colonel House? Um makes sense insofar as uh, A, he did not have any diplomatic experience at all prior to 1913, 1914. B, he didn't speak any European languages. And C, at times he appears to be um, almost what Zelikov refers to as uh, uh, either a villain or a fool.
0: Um, Well, uh, so I think there's a few reasons. First of all... um, uh, I think in a lot of respects, diplomacy is an extension of uh, the kinds of personal politics uh, the House was involved in uh, before uh, the First World War and had spent his entire life cultivating in terms of understanding networks of people um, and understanding networks of politics. I mean, I think uh, the the um, applying that to the international stage, House has a little bit of a learning curve. Um, but uh um but despite that learning curve um like that that kind of expertise in in the politics personal relations is something that he does very well and he um and he does very well in kind of cultivating a really serious trust uh on the part of Edward gray in particular um and uh and i don't think that the 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 presentation of him uh, as, a, as a fool, uh, really stands up to scrutiny uh, in light of, of the respective British response uh, to his uh, to his diplomacy. That that uh, that, that presentation makes sense um, when uh, when when the view of House is, is that his diplomacy is going nowhere. Um, um, but actually, like the the uh, American peace diplomacy. Uh, requires, uh, for it it to succeed on the part of the British, requires a very serious level of trust uh, between Britain and the United States, um, that it requires uh, the British to believe that Wilson will actually deliver, um, that the Americans will deliver on the promises uh, that they make uh, in the form of of the the House Grey Memorandum, uh, in in which the United States secretly promises a set of minimum Uh, uh, minimum peace terms. And for House to to secure that trust on the part of a number of British leaders, um, I think reflects uh, a much more serious diplomatist uh, than others uh, have given House credit for.
1: Now, your um, uh, view of the relationship between Colonel House and Sir Edward Gray relies heavily on uh, the Trevelyan biography. And uh, while you were writing the book, because it's not in the bibliography, um, came out uh, Thomas Atte's what widely regarded as definitive biography, now on uh, Sir Edward Grey. Now, Atte has a somewhat different view of the uh, Grey-House relationship. For the most part, he says that he can't make out whether or not Grey regarded House as a genuine friend and that for the most part, he has the impression that Gray is uh, primarily interested in uh, manipulating House for purposes of UK diplomacy. Um, mm-hmm. Do you still adhere to the Trevelyan uh, view?
0: Um, well, so, so I wouldn't say that it, it rests on, on Trevelyan's view. I would say um, that, that actually uh, there are a lot of documents from a lot of various archives, uh, in particular... Uh, Charles Harding's uh, papers at uh, well just just here at the University of Cambridge library um, discuss, uh, uh, Harding's rather rather discussed at um, the extent to which gray uh, trusts house um, and reflected also in the the, the papers in uh, uh, in London um, and so and so I think I, I have compiled uh, a sufficient number of quotations from, from across British archives that show um, other people uh, within the British government uh, horror um, uh, at the extent to which, or, or his opponents uh, uh, within the British government uh, horror at his, his trust of House. Um, that, that if um, Gray was, was feigning uh, or, or was just humoring House, um, that, that he would have no reason, there would be no reason to, to find all these uh, quotations in very British documents. So, so certainly, I, I, I hold to the view that that um, Grey trusted um, and had a very favourable opinion of House. In fact, if you if you look at some of the correspondence between the two after um, both are are no longer relevant on the political scene, there's there's a real degree of Genuine warmth um, in this uh, uh, that, that I think reflects the bond that had been created in 1915 and 1916. Um, so, 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 so I I, I very much uh, adhere to the to the view that this was a genuine and and warm relationship.
1: Now, if um, the hero of uh, Zelikow's book was Bethmann Hollweg, the German Chancellor, the hero of your book, correct me if I'm wrong would be, if the, if the book had to have a hero, would be Reginald McKenna, um, who was, uh, for most of the book, the Chancellor of the Exchequer in succession to Lloyd George. Um, mm-hmm. it, would, would that be a correct assessment of your opinion of uh, McKenna?
0: Um, uh, well, I wouldn't go so far as to say hero, um, but I, I mean I do think McKenna, uh, uh, McKenna and Asquith, uh, in particular, have been sort of Overly harshly treated by history, um, and that uh, uh, that, that uh, a, a more careful assessment re- reveals a more positive portrayal. So, so I, I, j- I shy away from the word hero, but but um, um, but otherwise, uh, 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 sure, um, yes, it's a reasonably positive portrayal of Reginald McKenna and, and Herbert Asquith um, as as British leaders.
1: Now, um, would you agree with the, the assessment that, at least of some historians, that one of the reasons, not the only one by any means, but one of the reasons why Asquith promoted McKenna to such high posts as Chancellor, Home Secretary, First Lord of the Admiralty, was the fact that uh, Asquith enjoyed, for lack of a better expression, un amite amoureuse with um, McKenna's wife?
0: Um, uh, well, so this, uh, this relationship... Arises a bit later on. Um, I forget. I forget exactly when um, uh, this begins, uh, uh, but but it's 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 um, nearer to the to the start of the First World War. Um, it, it's it's uh, it's an interesting relationship. Um, I've been through the um, uh, through the, the letters he he uh, exchanges with Pamela McKenna. Uh, at the, uh, which are, which are at Churchill College here in Cambridge. Um, and, uh, it, it's not quite clear exactly what the relationship or the setup is between, um, uh, between these two, uh, three people. I mean, it's, it, I think Martin Farr, um, who, who is, uh, an excellent scholar on, on Reginald McKenna, um, makes a convincing case that, that, uh, uh, McKenna is is aware of um the correspondence uh, going between uh the prime minister and his wife and so it's it's not quite clear exactly what's going on but um but no i i mean I think the the relationship between Asquith and McKenna uh stems much more from uh a political bond um rather than uh this kind of complicated personal relationship that um uh, a little more difficult to work out.
1: Now, why do you have a higher opinion of McKenna as Chancellor of the Exchequer than Lloyd George, who was his predecessor?
0: Ah, um, well, so, so a, a lot of it stems well. So, so the the focus of the book. Um, I mean, the, the the two have various merits on on various issues, but but the focus of the book is on uh, Britain's economic relationship with the United States, which is of of of, of crucial importance and. Uh, uh, and the, 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 and Reginald McKenna understands this relationship, uh, the, uh, uh, whereas Lloyd George simply doesn't. Um, because the key problem facing uh, British finance um, and the Anglo American economic relationship is the, is the huge dependence of the British government uh, and the British and Allied war effort on American goods and American supplies, um, and an inability. To uh, secure f- proper financing for these in the United States, but Americans simply won't lend the funds necessary to sustain the supply line, um, and so the British are trying to uh, trying to sustain this supply line through liquidation of assets. Um, but the problem with this is that you only have so many assets that you can liquidate um, before they're gone. Um, and Reginald McKenna understands this problem; um, that he sees that that, that this Americans that these American supplies are are operating on a time limit. Um, and and I, I, I believe, and I, I believe I, I, I show in the book, that, that Reginald McKenna is right on this point, that the, the British war effort, they either have to get the United States into the war by early 1917, uh, early to mid 1917, or they have to figure out a completely different way of fighting the First World War that doesn't rely on these American supplies, or they have to bring the First World War to an end. Um, and, and Lloyd George simply refuses to come to grapple, uh, to, 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 to grapple with this reality. Um, uh, he he consistently uh, believes that that basically Britain is financially invulnerable, um, and, that, and that this isn't a real problem. Uh, and uh, and and so uh, yeah, I, I, I judge him pretty harshly for for this um, uh, simple refusal to come to grips with. The reality of the situation
1: so actually in the book you there's a division in the British government uh, between what you refer to as realist versus maximalist can you mm-hmm. expand on that a little bit
0: yeah so 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 the realists are basically the people who understand this problem that that um, that these American supplies are limited uh, and I, as I as I as I as I put it the the, the strategic Decision facing the British government in the in the winter of 1950 to 1916 um, is is they have they have a choice um, that uh, a long war uh, vast amounts of American supplies uh, or a massive British war effort choose any two um, is how I put it and uh, and the realists come to grips with it they understand that either they they can rely on these supplies. Um, or, but it comes with uh, and uh, have a big British war effort, which is what they decide to do. But it comes with a trade-off um, that these supplies are not going to last very long, uh, and that and that they only have uh, a, a finite window in which to make this great big effort. Um, on the other hand, uh, the maximalists are, are people who refuse to come to come to grips with this reality. They insist on. Uh, uh, a maximal British war effort, a so maximum American supplies, maximum uh, uh, British, British uh, uh, deployment, British war effort, um, uh, while believing that these can be sustained indefinitely. And, uh, and I argue that, 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 that they're wrong, uh, that, that the British government did not have the ability to fight the kind of war effort that they demanded.
1: Now, what was the House Grey Memorandum and why it was not activated by the British in 1916?
0: Yes. Uh, well, so the House Grey Memorandum is a, an agreement that, that uh, House and Grey concluded um, in February of 1916, uh, in which um, uh, they, uh, the Americans promised that uh, they would secure a kind of m- a minimum uh, compromise set of peace terms for the Allies, at a peace conference, um, if the Allies agreed to to, uh, to support such a conference. Um, and that the United States would attempt to uh, leverage its power against Germany. Um, and that if Germany refused to come to this conference, the United States would threaten them uh, with war in order to, to bring them into conference. And that the United States um, would threaten Germany with war um, if it did not accept uh, uh, this, this set of minimum uh, peace terms, um, and uh, uh, I mean the, the reasons why it doesn't get activated are are, are multiple. Um, some stem from uh, mistakes on the part of uh, President Wilson, um, who uh, unintentionally undermines uh, the foundations of the agreement in a public speech in May of 1916. Uh, some of it has to do with this, this internal debate uh, between uh, the two different uh, sides in the British government, um, uh, one of whom doesn't see any reason to bring in the Americans because they refuse to accept uh, the kind of strategic calculus that, that's driving the other side uh, to, to believe that the House Gray Memorandum ought to be implemented. Um, and so there's, there's a lot of very... Uh, complex politics and diplomacy that goes into it, but, um, but I think those are those are kind of the the, the, the two central factors um, at play.
1: Why did the cabinet decide to rely upon the sum offensive to deliver, in the words of Lloyd George, quote the knockout blow, unquote?
0: Um, well, so 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 a, a lot of it has to do with the politics of. Um, uh the internal politics of the British government um which is evenly divided between liberals and conservatives um the liberals uh, by and large uh tend to be a bit more skeptical about this uh the, the, the ability of this offensive uh to produce results um and as as the liberals tend to be the realists, they're also much more anxious about the consequences of of a failure on Islam that, that uh that they recognize that um, uh, that their strategy is one of, uh, as I sometimes refer to it, as Battle of the Somme or bust, uh, that they either have to win the war with the Battle of the Somme or, um, or that the war is going uh, potentially to be over as a, as a consequence of not being able to rely on the U.S. as their uh, source of supplies. Um, whereas... Uh, Whereas the conservatives, uh, who, who but not all of them, but but by and large tend to be maximalist, um, first have a have a great deal more confidence in the in, uh, Battle of the Somme to produce results, a <clears throat> uh, higher level of trust in the military leadership, and then secondly, uh, a kind of dis, a disbelieving of the of the necessity to win the war uh, with the Battle of the Somme, that it that it's perfectly fine for the Battle of the Somme to um produce sort of middling to positive results uh, in the expectation that fresh offenses can be uh, can be run on the same kind of basis uh in in uh, the the subsequent year.
1: Uh why were such intelligent and sophisticated diplomats like Lords Hardinage and Birdie so vilely opposed to American mediation?
0: Um uh, part of it comes from uh uh the strategic calculus um, that, that Harding is, is, is much more willing to say that um, you know at, at one point he, he says that the battle of the Somme has produced good results and we look forward to continuing on uh, the struggle next year uh, to, to something like that and so he he, he doesn't accept the strategic calculus um, and and so sees no reason to bring in the Americans uh, is is. Is a large part of it. Um, I, I, a second part of it is, is a kind of uh, reflexive hostility to uh, uh, to the to, uh, to the Americans. Part of part of which perhaps stems from the fact that they never got to know Colonel House very well. Um, that Colonel House uh, uh, didn't um, uh, cultivate them because Hardinge was yet not yet in post, and um, uh, and Bertie was not yet. Um, uh, well, and, and Bertie was just simply not someone who he had seen very much of in Paris, um, and so and so I think of, uh, some of it reflects the kind of hostility towards this person that they do not know uh, and have no reason to trust, and um, and then and then combined with that is is the the U.S. presidential election in 1916, um, which adds to a sense um, that perhaps House was only over here for domestic political reasons. Um, and that and that uh, 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 Bertie at one point talks about um, you know Wilson uh, being affected by the uh, at several points is Wilson being driven by the presidential election and by nothing else um, even though that's completely untrue um, so I, uh, I think that uh, sums it up pretty well
1: why was the conscription crisis of 1916 so important in terms of domestic and indeed uh, other aspects of British uh, policy and, and politics?
0: Um, yes, yeah, so the conscription crisis is, is, is sort of at the center of this um, British strategic debate. So, um, so the question is, is Britain going to mount an all-out war effort in uh, 1916, um, or is it going to hold back a bit um, and concentrate a bit more on sustaining this American supply link? Um, and, and the question with conscription is basically, um, uh, conscription is what's needed in order to produce the men for the all-out war effort, um, and so conscription is a kind of proxy debate for this this much larger strategic debate, um, uh, which which plays out over over the winter of 1916, and that's why that's why the issue of conscription is so important, is because um, it's because the debate over it is really a debate not over. You know, the 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 niceties of whether um, it's appropriate to bring people by force into the, you know, to compel people into the armed forces. But it's really a debate over the United States and about what kind of British war effort is going to be fought in 1916 and how long um, uh, a British war effort um, that relies on the United States as a space of supplies uh, could last.
1: Why do you regard the German mediation efforts of 1916, early 1917, as not being entirely serious or only serious insofar as uh, such mediation efforts would result in the German victory?
0: Yes, because I mean, I think it's um, it's clear uh, that that the kinds of proposals that Germany makes are, are aimed at securing a kind of victory by negotiation. Um, that the kinds of terms that that Germany suggests that it's willing to accept um, are the the terms of um, potentially a a more moderate German victory uh, than than Germany aimed at earlier in in the war, uh, before the autumn of 1916. Um, But there's still terms uh, that, that reflect a German victory, which reflects the, the situation on the ground. in Germany has made significant territorial advances throughout Belgium, into France, uh, into Russia. Um, uh, the, the, their, 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 they and their allies have a significant military advantage um, in southeastern Europe. Um, and so on the, on the basis of what we see in German diplomacy uh, in, 19, in late 1915, um, the, the kind of peace that Germany is aiming at appears to be a kind of victory by negotiation, um, uh, and uh, uh, which differs pretty considerably from the from the kind of uh, more more uh, more closer closer to a to a kind of genuine compromise um, that's uh, reflected in um, what the British. Liberals uh, are interested in uh, and what the Americans hopes to achieve.
1: How and why did uh, Lloyd George manage to oust Asquith in December 1916 from the premiership?
0: Ah, yes. This is um, uh, a fascinating series of events. So um, It's a, f- a fairly complex political crisis. Um that that involves a lot of brinksmanship by Lloyd George and and a fair few mistakes by Um, Asquith. The the circumstances at the beginning of December uh, or the end of November of 1916 is actually one in which Lloyd George has been outmaneuvered and is isolated, um, that there's no appetite for replacing uh, Asquith or or not much of one uh, amongst the conservatives uh, rank and file. Um, in the, in the, in the cabinet. And, um, and yet Lloyd George kicks off, kicks off the crisis with a, with a really dramatic threat, um, that he is going to not only resign from the government, um, but he is going to stump across the country delivering hostile speeches, attempting to force the collapse of, of the Asquith coalition. Um, and it's this threat, uh, that, that sets the circumstances. Uh, for, for, for the next few days. The conservatives decide that, that uh, Lloyd George cannot be allowed to make this threat, um, and that, uh, uh, well, to carry out this threat, and that uh, the only thing that to be done is for Lloyd George to try to form a government. Whether or not he succeeds is, a, is, a, is another question. Um, uh, uh, and Asquith attempts to, to make a deal with Lloyd George. Um, and, uh, according to new documents I, I found at the University of Oxford um, that were only put into uh, researchers' uh, availability or researchers' hands over the past uh, handful of years or you know, recent years, um, uh, Asquith thinks he's succeeded in getting Lloyd George to back down. Um, but on, on the other hand, um, uh, uh, to the extent that Asquith thinks this, uh, he's, he's wrong, uh, and Lloyd George. Leaks very violently against the deal that, uh, that they supposedly struck, or that Asquith thinks they struck. Um, and uh, eventually maneuvers uh, Asquith into a position where Lloyd George resigns from a position of strength um, and forces Asquith to resign in a, in a much weaker position, uh, so sort of six days later. And, um, and, and, and this position of weakness allows Lloyd George uh, to, uh, to succeed in forming a government, whereas uh, a few days earlier um, he might well, or probably would have failed uh, to put a government together and, and Asquith would have returned to the top role with his position strengthened.
1: So would it be correct to say that uh, Lloyd George, throughout this period, November-December 1916, was he, in addition to being duplicitous and opportunistic, uh, also manipulating the situation, and therefore saw an opportunity come to oust Asquith, or did he aim from the very beginnings to oust Asquith and he just used what came on his way in terms of opportunities and weapons for that purpose
0: um yeah I, I mean I uh, Lloyd George was definitely determined to seize power um, the form in which this power would take uh uh could, could be up for negotiation, but Lloyd George was determined to seek power. Um, I mean, there's a, a really good document actually from earlier in 1916 in which Lloyd George talks about trying to force a general le- election in the middle of the war and then come in and win the, the general election. So it's clear that Lloyd George really has his eye on the top prize um, from an early stage and that this is this is a matter of personal ambition. Um, and, and yes, he in my view, he acts in a, in a very... Uh, manipulative way throughout the crisis, a brilliant way um, uh, from from a matter of kind of um, tactical politics, um, but but certainly a very manipulative and duplicitous way um, in which he tells uh, different people uh, very different things depending on what suits him uh, politically. Uh, so, so so but uh, so a, a master manipulator, but also a brilliant uh, political tactician how I would describe
1: it. Now, upon entering number 10 in December 1916, what, au fond, was uh, Lloyd George's opinion? uh, or What did he really think about the UK's chances of winning the war at that point?
0: Uh, Sorry, can you repeat that?
1: Certainly. Uh, Upon entering uh, 10 Downing Street in uh, December 1916, what, au fond, was uh, Lloyd George's uh, Thinking about the UK's chances of winning the war at that point.
0: Ah, um, so Lord George um, he comes into office with a very sort of contradictory set of views. Uh, in that he he thinks that the war effort is going terribly badly, um, but at the same time he just recently publicly committed himself to uh, to a knockout blow. Um, and so as 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 one observer um uh put it that he seems to to combine the kind of gloomiest uh view of the state of the war alongside the the uh, a really ambitious um, uh, view of what uh, uh how the, the 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 allies should win the war um, and so it, 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 reconciling these is i think um possible uh in that I mean, I think Lloyd George had a huge amount of confidence in his own abilities um, and his own ability to kind of set things right, uh, and that he believed that, um, uh, and that and that maybe the the, the term knock, knockout blow is, is kind of better understood as a kind of exaggerated metaphor. Um, that Lloyd George uh, believed he could secure. Um, A kind of victory, um, uh, but one that didn't necessarily have to involve, um, uh, you know, allied troops marching into Berlin, um, that uh, that, that an allied victory um, could take a more limited form, um, but that it still had to be a form of allied victory. Um, And so I think think that's kind of the best way uh, to, to, to understand his view, is that he thinks that Britain's got a lot of time left. That um, the Allies have a lot of time left if they need it. Um, uh, where uh, you know that, uh, um, and so with that time, um, he can lead uh, the Allies into a kind of favorable position um, that that could be called a victory.
1: Now, could it not be argued that uh, at bottom? Um that Wilson's and House's underlying anglophilia made them extremely reluctant to coerce the Allies, the Entente powers, into uh, entering a peace conference, and that in the absence of any type of uh, real American coercion, the Entente powers would simply refuse to pursue the peace option?
0: Um, I mean, to an extent. um, But I I mean, I I think that, um that the, the, the that it's not the absence of coercion against the allies that's essential it's um it's establishing what it is uh, uh that germany wants uh and that uh that it's it's about establishing um the way in which these negotiations are going to unfold uh such that the Americans could be confident of them uh, resulting in a kind of uh, in, a, in a compromise uh, outcome that is that is a that is a real compromise um, and and so because there's this there's this really illustrative misunderstanding um, or perhaps deliberate misunderstanding on the part of the German ambassador to Washington Count Berenstorf, um, in January of 1917 in which he, he sort of misleads. House into thinking that Germany is is ready to accept, uh, is ready to make huge concessions, and is ready to accept a, a genuine, uh, you know, a real compromise as as a, as a result of the war. Um, and House leaps at this and and is perfectly happy to uh, apply all kinds of pressure to the British um, to make this result happen.
1: Um,
0: but uh, but then um, Berenstorf reveals, you know, through some, some Diplomatic back and forth. Berensworth and reveals that, that, that this isn't the case, um, and uh, and so the the issue is really of of uh, you know the leverage against the allies. The Americans have it, um, but they only want to use it um, if they can be confident that the peace they're going to force the allies into um, is a peace that's a real compromise, a, a peace without victory, um, and they don't want to force the allies into a circumstance in which uh, the Allies are accepting what is in, uh, you know, at root a German victory, um, even if a kind of moderate one, um, because they don't believe, Wolf in particular doesn't believe, that anything other than a peace without victory, um, a, a real compromise, is going to result in, in a kind of durable peace uh, that will last uh, the test of time.
1: Was there ever, in fact, regardless of what Gray, McKenna, Asquith, and Balfour thought, a parliamentary majority in favor of a compromised peace in the period that the book deals with. Uh,
0: yes, so so that uh, that's a really interesting question because I mean, parliament is very is important here. It's 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 an actor um, that that has to be taken into consideration. Um, but at the same time, uh, it's not as though the diplomacy that the uh, that the government gets up to is going to be subject to a, to a direct parliamentary vote. It's not as though um, uh, this, will be, this will be submitted to the House of Commons for its approval. that uh, uh, the question, the power of the House of Commons, is really one of, of blowing up the government, of, of a, a vote of no confidence um, that, that would blow up the government. Uh, so, so, the, so really the kind of the, the political question is, is about holding the government together um, in such a way uh, that would hold that kind of threat at bay. Um and this this, of course, would be a a, a very delicate um, political thicket uh, to be sure. I am in, in no way uh, understating uh, the the delicacy of of such a problem, but at the, at the same time, um, i mean the the importance of parliament uh, should not necessarily be overestimated um, in, in in terms of how this diplomacy would would play out.
1: Would it be true to say that for you, that perhaps one of the chief points of the book is an anti-teleological one—that contingency in history matters a great deal?
0: Um, yes, I mean, I, 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 I think contingency in history does matter a great deal. Uh, that um, that there is a lot of there's a lot of moments in the book uh, where things, you know, could happen very differently, or um where where things are just very chaotic uh, that that um, I mean I, one one thing uh, uh, especially when it comes to British foreign policy uh, in this period is that British British foreign policy is, is chaos um, uh, that there are all kinds of different people doing all kinds of um, uh, different things uh, and uh, uh, and competing with one another um, and so uh, in such an, in such an element, or in such a situation, contingency is, of course, going to be very important um, because it's going to determine, you know, who wins, which debates at what point, and whether the winners of those debates at which, you know, at those particular points go on um, to uh, to to have various other consequences. Um, so yes, I, I mean, I think contingency is very important. There are these structural factors um, that we have to take into account that, that set. Um, That set up the 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 situation and how the situation could turn out, but um, um, but in a lot of ways, foreign policy actors really have the hands, you know, have have uh, uh, their own, have a great deal of agency and a great deal of uh, of ability to shape how events turn out, Um, and so there's a lot of contingency in terms of. Um, how that agency gets used.
1: Following from that, would it be true to say um, that the events of the first four months of 1917 almost make it seem as if it indeed, quote, God was an Englishman, unquote? (laughs)
0: Um, uh, to an extent. Um, I mean, Britain certainly gets very lucky. Uh, I mean, part of it is not just luck. Part of it is, um... The, uh, the policies of Asquish, uh, uh, and, and of, of his followers that follow, followers from the government trying to extend this American lifeline for as long as possible. Um, but it's true that the Americans come to war almost at precisely the moment when British assets in the United States are about to, uh, are about to be exhausted. Um, and that, uh, and that this, these British supplies, uh, that Germany tries to cut off That's the whole point of the, the unrestricted submarine warfare that ultimately brings the United States into the war, is to cut off these supplies. Um, and so the race uh, is really in some ways between um, those in, in the British government who understand the importance of extending the life of these supplies for as long as possible by conserving British assets in America, um, and those in Germany who, um, who understand the threat the United States poses to the German war effort, um, and uh, and so Britain gets extremely lucky in that, and um, that that the United States enters the war um, just just before a potentially war-ending financial crisis.
1: Yes. If you wanted people to take one thing away from your book, what would it be?
0: I think it would be the lesson about um, about contingency and about the the, the extent to which people. Have control, more control over the, over situations and, than, than sometimes people realize. That, um, that there is a tendency sometimes to view international events and international outcomes, um, as, you know, being in the hands of, of, of these swirling forces that are beyond mortal control, um, that, that, that history is somehow predestined to play out, uh, in certain ways, um, and, that that i would say no that um that people people shape history um, and people uh get to make and people get to and have to make decisions um that shape how uh history is going to turn out Um, and so i'd say it's one of one of human control over over events um and that and that's this human control Uh, should not be underestimated
1: on that observation which I would like to agree with entirely I would like to thank you very much Dr. Larson for being so kind as to speak with us today this is Charles Cotillo thanks for listening to New Books History a podcast channel on the New Books Network thank you Dr. Larson
0: it's been my pleasure thank you very much